The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 12th of September. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. As you know, almost 13,000 people have no place to call home in Ireland. 12,847 people live in emergency accommodation. 3,829 children live in emergency accommodation. It is truly shameful, but because we've been living with a housing crisis for 15 years at this stage these figures sometimes wash over us we become immune to what is the shocking reality for thousands of men, women and children who are being failed by the state in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Yes it is shocking and yes it is shameful but we have come to accept that widespread homelessness is a reality of life in Ireland and there's nothing anyone can do about it Or is there? Well, perhaps there is. Perhaps the 13,000 people who are homeless could be given somewhere to live in one of the 3,500 empty council homes in the country. That's a figure of 3,544 to be precise. That's a figure that was given to Padertoe Bean under the Freedom of Information Act from local authorities around the country. Padertoe Bean is uh, the leader of AIN2 and a TD for Meath West and joins us now. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Do we know how long these houses have been vacant for? Well, the information that we have so far is that, on average, these houses are va- uh, vacant for about eight months of the year. And the reason why I put the FOIs into every single local authority in the country was because we were getting phone calls from people in housing estates uh, who were, you know, desperate need for for a home, and they would say such and such a local authority home has been boarded up for the last two years. And uh, we would get onto the council, and we would get a confirmation that that would be the case. And this would be obviously quite shocking to us because our offices are inundated with people uh, who are in, in, in housing crisis. It's by far the biggest issue concerning people walking through the doors of our offices uh, around County Meath. So, you know, we, we, we put the information in and we got the shocking informa- information back from the question that 3,500 local authority homes are lying empty. Now, <clears throat> there's no doubt that... In any system, you're going to have some level of vacancy because, you know, you can't turn everything over within a single day. But the idea that on average they're vacant for eight months uh, is incredible. And you mentioned, you know, the, the complete disaster that exists for those 12,800 people who, who are living in emergency accommodation. You know, that affects their mm. mental health. It affects their ability to you know, provide proper nutrition to them because usually they don't have cooking facilities. You know, for children uh, trying to study in, in hotel rooms, and, you know, their socialising, all of those skills are reduced as a result of the circumstance. And we also have, remember this, hundreds of people who are dying homeless on the streets of a country uh, every single year. Um, and how that would exist at the same time we have local authority homes at such a level empty is absolutely incredible. And it's absolutely wrong. And we're asking for the governments to get serious about this, to get real, and to make sure that any bureaucracy, any red tape that's slowing the turnover of these properties uh, is, is cut, and also that the local authorities have the necessary investment and staff to be able to you know, turn these properties around and re them 
What's wrong with these houses? What's wrong with these houses? Do we know? I mean, you'd build a house in eight months. Well, it, it's funny because years ago, um, you, you, there were situations where if a person left a home, local authority home, and it was in decent condition, the keys were just given to the next mm. family. So mm. the turnaround there would be maybe a week you know, between people left and moved in. And indeed, if you rent a, a private property, that's typically what happens. Now, in certain occasions, there'll be maybe damage done, cleaning mm. needed, and that will, be, that will be sorted out. But from what I'm hearing is that in many cases, the local authorities are ripping out much of the material that's in those houses uh, and, you know, putting in um, brand new kitchens or brand new facilities in, into those houses. Mm. And obviously that's a big cost to the state um, and it's taking a long time for them to turn around. Sorry, just you mentioned at the start uh, that some of these houses are boarded up. I, I take it for the period of time that they're boarded up, nothing at all is happening. Yeah, that, 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 would be, that would be most of the case, uh, that when they're, they're uh, boarded up, be, there would be very little to be done in those areas. Um, now, the council also make the claim that you know, they do offer homes to people and people refuse these homes, uh, etc. Um, but it is just really hard to see how it could take that long to rent a home in this type of crisis. Mm. A situation that we're in at the moment, and yeah, and they're know, going in and replacing perfectly good kitchens with brand new kitchens, and at the same time, tenants in council houses can't get them repaired. And and, and this is it. So they have they have a policy that the the house has to be at a particular standard on each time of letting, and that standard has to be exactly the same as the standard mm. that that house had on on day one. And don't get me wrong, we do need decent standards uh, for people. People are entitled to homes to move into mm. of decent standards. But we do need also to have a little bit of common sense. Yeah. And a bit of common sense here is that if there's, you know, 12,500 people homeless, well, then the priority becomes actually making sure that vacancy doesn't last for long periods of time, mm. that that is happening at the moment as well. Uh, and another piece of common sense is uh, to ask yourself, why are you painting a house when it doesn't need painting? Uh, and the answer cannot be because you have to tick that box in the form. See, and, and if you ask me, there's a major problem right throughout Irish administration currently uh, in relation to bureaucracy, in relation to red tape. I think the National Children's Hospital is a perfect example of where this has just gone crazy. I understand that there's one particular room in the National Children's Hospital that has had its design redesigned 125 times. That there's 125 separate designs for a particular room uh, in that hospital. And, you know, if you go to most of the European countries, you don't see the same level of bureaucracy and the same level of red tape in terms of public construction. Public construction currently is, has become an absolute disaster. And I, I, I do believe that it is a significant contribution um, to the slow delivery of uh, public houses at the moment. You know, I speak to people in the, the nursing home sector and, you know, private nursing home uh, facilities tell me that they can build uh, facilities for half the bed price than they are built publicly. You know, and this is really annoying to me because I believe in good uh, public contribution to the, the, the society. I want to see the state involved in many aspects of the delivery of our society. But the, this government's ability to deliver public projects is sucking the confidence away from anybody in terms of uh, the public uh, uh, delivery mm. of these types of projects. Right. Um, and, you know, just in, in Meads, the, you know, there's 3,500 people on the housing waiting list. That housing waiting list nationally mm. um, is 95,000 people on the housing waiting list. 
Um, if you put the 70,000 people who are on RAS and uh, HAP at the moment, you talk about well over you know, 150,000 people who are in some kind of housing distress. And yet, at the same time, we have this really slow glacial process mm. whereby we have houses uh, empty for uh, for eight months. But not that many in County Meath and not that many in County Loud either, it seems. Well, yeah, I mean, in, in, I in, in fairness to the local authorities, uh, they seem to be performing well uh, above the national average. In fairness uh, to Meath, in terms of the, the, the population, Meath is, is, is doing uh, a, a decent job compared to other uh, 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 counties. Loud a little bit worse uh, than Meath, given that it has a smaller population uh, than Meath. Um, but can you hear me? I'm the, sorry. Sorry, we have a, a cross voice there. We, we have course. a cross line. I beg your pardon, yes. The, uh, but, uh, but, but what's the figures again? I, I, I don't so have in, in Meath, there's 56, yeah. uh, 56 local authority homes empty today. In Louth, there's 62 um, local authority mm. em- uh, empty houses, council houses that are empty mm. at the moment. Yeah, and plenty of houses uh, available in bordering counties. Uh, so uh, people may need to move uh, a, a little bit away if these houses were brought back into use. Uh, certainly uh, quicker than in eight months, which you say is the average. Uh, and I take it when the houses have been destroyed by the previous tenants, that's what's bringing up that average uh, because that probably takes a lot longer. Yeah, so we, we also put in a question to local authority about how much an average does it take to actually bring a house back into use. And uh, Galway County Council gave us an answer that on average they need 20, 25 grand worth of work uh, to bring a house back into use. Why? Now, 25 grand is, is, is a big chunk of money in, 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 in most people's lives, but in the scale of a construction build or you know, even a, mm. a, a revamp of a home, it's not actually massive money. And But they don't, you know, the, they, they don't carry out major works, do they? I mean, they go in and uh, replace the kitchen and uh, 20, paint the exactly, place up. 25, yeah. 25 grand isn't major reconstruction within, in the home. Mm. And 25 grand should not take eight months. It's not eight months' work. It's mm. about four weeks' work. Yeah. Um, and if, if you take the materials and, and, and the labour necessary uh, to get a, a team of people into it. Mm. Um, so uh, what I'm saying here, we, we have a, a, a crisis, mm. but we don't have the urgency yeah. of the government. We have a minister who is presiding over this, who is, is also the minister for local government. So he has the two roles, minister for housing and minister for local government. Mm. He should be in there cracking the whip and making sure that there are standards being delivered by local authorities uh, in these terms and that we get more practical, we use mm. more common sense. Uh, you know, and that maybe a thousand or one and a half thousand out of the three and a half thousand houses could be made uh, available and that you wouldn't have so many houses that are, are vacant at any one given time. Yes, yeah, so on average, uh, three people uh, will live in a house. Um, mm. So if you take the twelve and a half thousand people um, that are in, in a homeless uh, accommodation at the moment, you know, half of those people um, could actually be accommodated. More than half could be accommodated uh, in the houses uh, that are there uh, at the moment. And then um, you take the ones that are um, privately owned. 60,000 vacant homes. Uh, they're talking about the 60,000 homes coming under a, a new property tax type of uh, thing. But if two or three or four or five uh, thousand of those homes could be made available to people to live in, uh, we wouldn't have a housing pro- uh, crisis. Yeah, it, it is interesting, but 60,000 is, is a big level of empty homes within the private sector, and absolutely we need to get it fixed. But if you look at who is the biggest hoarder of empty homes in the country, 
actually the state, and that's quite shocking that the state should be orientated to fixing this, but it is the biggest hoarder of empty homes. I absolutely agree with you that there's towns and villages in my own constituency where nearly every third home on the main street is empty. Uh, and, you know, that kind of situation in a housing crisis is kind of like ships leaving with food in the time of famine. You know what I mean? It just does not make sense that you have the resource you know, cheek by jowl to the actual needs and, and, and they're not being resolved. But we've been talking about a vacant home tax for at least 10 years in, in this state and the government has not uh, properly implemented in full across the country mm. a vacant home tax. And we need also the carrot as well. We need this, the necessary grant uh, provision to be there to allow for people to be able to get these vacant homes, some of which are maybe in bad shape, back in, into public use. And that would revitalise uh, those towns and villages by getting young families in there, into the schools, uh, in, in, into the football clubs, uh, etc. And there, there are other systems in other countries whereby if there are vacant or derelict homes, they, the state CPOs them and then sells them at a small price to people if there's a big, you know, reconstruction uh, cost to mm. it. And um, because it's better off having, you know, some family working on a house and, and getting into it than vacant homes. Yeah, the other I, element I would say to mm. this, and this is the really frustrates me, is the number of Airbnb uh, short-term rents that exist in towns and cities in this country. So when COVID happened and international travel stopped, uh, there was a massive increase in the number of long-term rental homes available. Thousands of, of houses that were uh, initially being used for short-term rent, or Airbnbs, come into the long-term rental market. Um, and you know that showed how, how many of these homes were being tied up and then when, obviously, the COVID restrictions were lifted and international travel started again, these homes disappeared. Mm. Now, it does not make sense that we have families living in hotels and tourists living in homes. Well, we, this we is the need- thing. I, I mean, when we talk uh, about 12,847 people or almost 4,000 children, 3,829 children who are homeless, uh, they're not living on the streets. They're in emergency accommodation. And that accommodation is paid for. I mean, the government pays for the hotels, the hostels, the B&Bs, whatever else. Uh, and it's a hefty bill, isn't it, at about €200 million. Euro. 200 million euros, hundreds of millions of euros are being spent on emergency accommodation every single year, while 3,500 local authority homes remain empty. And, you know, that's dead money after the, the, the given rent of the, the time uh, has elapsed that money disappears uh, into the system. The government are left with no um, resource, uh, no asset that they can use to help people in the future or gain, you know, rental income from the mm. future. Uh, as, uh, and, and that's the case with, with, with the RAS figures as well. The RAS and the HAP figures are, are quite incredible. Well over a billion euros currently being spent, according to these FOIs, by local authorities around the country um, on RAS and HAP. And... You know, that, that money, again, is dead money. Once it pays for the rent of the given year, there's nothing left for the government with, to have. Mm. And if they invested that money instead into building new houses, well, then it would increase the housing stock you know, and the supply, helping everybody. But the state would also have for 20, 50 years, 60 years, a house in which they can use uh, to help somebody. And the problem with RAS and HAP is it actually takes houses out of the private rented sector. So it, it, it reduces the size of that market, thereby pushing up rents in that, in that sector. And at the same time, um, it 
you know, it, there's no long-term benefit for the state. All right, we have to leave it there, but thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme. This morning, Padder Tobin is uh, the leader of AIM2 and a TD for Meadwest. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, has written to the Road Safety Authority asking for ways of teaching road safety in schools. Let's speak to Tony Toner, former Garda Division uh, driving instructor and on-road driving consultant. And a very good morning to you, Tony. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. What do you make of uh, this proposal? It's a long time coming. Um, Our education system, we've just, in recent weeks, seen the Leave and Cirque results. And the Department of Education, the Department of Trade and Industry have lauded the young people who achieved fantastic results, as they do every year through our education system. We have young people here who are receptive to education and they achieve and that's recognized by the amount of world headquarters european headquarters that are situated here in ireland in the pharmaceutical digital and financial spheres Mm. Um, and yet when it comes to road educating our drivers it just doesn't and didn't register until it's come into conversation now this week. Yeah. Um, the 17-year-old today, when the driving test was constituted and inaugurated in 1964, a 17-year-old in 1964 is so different than a 17-year-old today. A 13-year-old today, if you give them a visa card and a passport, they could travel the world. When they go into secondary school, to me, there is an ideal opportunity across our nation Mm. to get people on board. Don't alienate them by coming out with, you know, speed days and, and, and a public marketing, you know, dare I say it, events, I'll call them. Mm. Uh, That's rubbish because it's token gesture and it's like eating popcorn. It's lovely when you're doing it. But five minutes after you put it away, you're starving. What should I, we be teaching children in secondary school, specifically leaving cert students? Because that's what the minister is talking about. Because uh, I, I wonder uh, if it's too late at that stage. Uh, uh, I think that there's quite a, a number of young people who are driving to school. There's some, Like I've been involved in, in road education programmes for since 1983. So I'm a bit on the crispy side, Michael. Um, (laughs) And I've talked to young people in classrooms. And when you go into a transition year class and you ask how many here can drive, 95% plus will put up the hands and say they've already been driving on the road in a public place without insurance and without a license and possibly with a a member of their family. Mm. Right? So, they, you know, they're already introducing themselves behind our backs to motorised vehicles. Mm. Mm-hmm. The, the leaving cert year is a very condensed year for most people. You know, they're catching up. They're, they're, they're fearful of not getting points. And I think to load them 
with with a driving program uh, for that year uh, without starting it in a year or two years previously would be unfair on them. Mm. But there is, when you think of the amount of schools that are around Ireland, that at four o'clock this afternoon, there is car parks and areas that are away from the public, that the gate can be closed, where you could take in local driving schools to inaugurate a what I call a road fitness program. Um, and I, I, I avoid, where possible, using the term safety mm. because I think it is got to the stage now where it's like the boy who cried wolf. The minute people hear safety, the shutters come down inside the head, the, the clicker in the hand goes to a different channel and, um, you know, it's lost its effectiveness. But as a nation... Mm. We will we will support our national team even when it disappoints us. We will support our local sporting clubs and our rugby guys are out there. Like our girls did fantastic in the World Cup. Uh, the Irish hockey team on the ladies side did wonderful as well. Mm. We all found out what's the rules for hockey. But, but we found them out. But yeah, when it comes to the rules of the game for the road, nobody goes near them. Maybe there's an attitude problem, Tony. I have to say, I was really disappointed by what you said. 95% of uh, the students in transition year saying that they'd driven on the public road without insurance, without a licence, probably uh, with a member of uh, their family. It really is a very, very bad example, isn't it? Given by parents, if that's what they're doing, taking their children out uh, because uh, they're teaching them to flaunt the road safety laws. Children have been sitting in the back of cars, Michael, as you're probably well aware, from their cognitively, say, four years old, watching what mum and dad is doing. And by the time they're 17, they've already ingrained in their children a culture of maybe intolerance, of um, expressing their views all too vocally when somebody does something wrong on the road. So by the time that... 17-year-old gets behind the wheel of a car, um, they, they could be well on the way to being, uh, as I say, an intolerant driver. Mm, and uh, there's obviously intolerant drivers around. Stephen and Drahada texting us early this morning asking when are they going to take action on having speed zones in at the town with cameras to stop people speeding? When are the Gardaí going to stop these individuals who have altered their engines to make them faster because uh, they take advantage of the Gardaí not being around all of the time, especially in the evenings and uh, at night you can hear them flying through the town especially Lawrence Street and Pallant Street. He, he says it, it, it needs to happen now before we do have serious accidents. You know, the unfortunate thing about it is the many are being uh, targeted for the sins of the few. Uh, we have 2.2 million vehicles on Irish roads. There was... I, I can't remember what the exact figure was, Michael. Mm. There was uh, 180-plus caught for speeding last week at the the, the, the Speed Awareness Day ran by the mm. Gardaí. One every half hour. Okay, that's less than 200 out of 2.2 million. Mm. The 2.2 million, you know, are getting bombarded because of 
what's uh, happening by a small minority of drivers. And it doesn't matter if you lower the speed limits, they're still going to do what they're doing because they have an attitude of don't care, of uh, selfishness, you know, aggressiveness possibly. Mm. Um, And yes, there is a need for a referee on the pitch. I go back to the sporting analogy again. Like, if there was no referee on the pitch, um, I wouldn't like to see, uh, you know, a, a gag game, a hurling yeah, game, yeah. or a rugby game take place. Exactly. There has to be referees. There has to be rules in the game. The players have to know what those rules are. Mm. They have to wear the right equipment. It must be in good nick. Yeah. And everybody was told, I mean, this is a point that's been made, uh, I suppose, a few times in the programme by listeners. Everybody was told on National Slowdown Day that the referee would be on the pitch. Uh, In other words, the guardee would be policing the roads. uh, And they still caught so many. I think it was 865 drivers uh, who were found uh, to be driving in excess of uh, the speed limits. uh, But... Uh, it's a small amount, as you say, out of uh, over two million motor vehicles on the road. Tony, I'm over time, but we leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed for joining us, as always, on the programme today. Tony Toner, former Garda driving instructor and on-road driving consultant. Now, some more comments coming to us uh, today. Uh, somebody texting us saying the government would want to give old age pensioners at least €50 Euro a week because the cost of living has gone through the roof. And a text to us this morning uh, by somebody who I would imagine feels similar, but was annoyed with a text yesterday from a man who said he was working to make pensioners rich. I worked in hospitality for 40 years and I couldn't afford a private pension. Now I get €265 after all of those years working and I don't get fuel allowance because my son lives with me uh, and he is working. Thank you, Ellen, for sharing that with us. Uh, We had a number of people in touch with us as well about empty houses. John in Cavan says the reason for the backlog in houses being rented out is because the councils have one or two cronies that they give the work to and other contractors are not even asked. It's the old Irish thing. If you're not in the circle, you don't even get asked. And another thing, he says, is that the council and the HSE take so long to pay contractors who do all of this work waiting for money. Uh, It takes up to three months for a refit of a bathroom, which takes a week to do. You have to be a banker as well for the council and the HSE and the contractors can't get workers to do the work. We have a C2 and tax clearance and we send details to the HSE and to the council and we're not in the circle so we don't get asked. Thank you indeed. John, similar comment from someone who says it's the same here in South County Dublin. Vacant houses boarded up for over a year. My understanding is that council workers like carpenters, plumbers, painters, etc. used to do the job to get these houses ready for new tenants, but councils have tendered out the work to refurbish. Uh, They're under contract now to private companies. The councils are no doubt paying these private companies a huge amount of money and they're in no hurry to refurbish an empty house. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Just one more comment for the moment uh, from uh, somebody who says they're not 
paying attention uh, to speed units now. So what use is reducing the speed limits? They need speed vans back and guardie on the roads to bring down the speed that people are driving at. Thank you to everybody who's been in touch. If you've uh, not been in touch or if you have and you'd like to make another comment, but if you'd like to comment on the programme, our, our phone number is 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 086 email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Special Criminal Court yesterday found uh, two men not guilty of being involved in the robbery at the Credit Union in Lordship in 2013. This is 32-year-old James Flynn and 34-year-old Brendan Trainer. As we know, it was one of the darkest days in this corner of the island and resulted in the killing of Detective Garda Adrian Donoghue. We know that Aaron Brady was responsible for that murder and that he's serving a life sentence for his crime. Let's speak to Owen Reynolds, court reporter with Ireland International News Agency. Good morning to you, Owen, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Flynn and Trainer acquitted by the court yesterday, uh, but uh, it seems as though there was little doubt in the court's mind that they were affiliated with Brady and his gang. That's absolutely correct, Michael, yeah. The court had a, went through a judgment yesterday for about it was a little over four hours. So it was very lengthy, very detailed, and um, it really gave uh, you know a, a lot of detail about the actual offences, what happened on that day, what happened in the lead up to it, and the involvement of certainly James Flynn before and after the fact. And the, uh, the court found that Brendan Trainer was also involved in this criminal um, gang, that he supported uh, its its aims and uh, its uh, its activities. But the, they, they did find a problem or uh, some problems with the prosecution evidence, which they said had not proven beyond a reasonable doubt that either man was actively involved in the actual robbery when it occurred at Lordship Credit Union. And in fact, they did find that there are possible or even more likely reasonable explanations as to what each person's involvement uh, in the in this uh, affair was. Okay. So and there was I mean, a we, guilty can, we can drill down into that because yeah. obviously there is a lot of detail, but um, sure. I'll but, be led by you. Okay. Uh, oh, no, I was just going to ask you about uh, James Flynn uh, because he, he was found guilty on a, another charge and that was conspiring to steal the getaway car, wasn't it? Exactly, yes. Yeah. So originally both men were charged with actually a number of a conspiracy to commit a number of different burglaries in Cavanlouth, me, me, uh, Monaghan and Westmeath in 2012 and 2013 in the months leading up to the robbery. Um, now, ultimately, the court found that there wasn't enough evidence to convict either man of those of the of the those that wider conspiracy uh, to st- to commit those burglaries, but they did find that James Flynn uh, conspired with Aaron Brady to steal a Volkswagen Passat from outside a house in Clarehead in, in the early hours of the twenty third of January twenty thirteen. That is two days before the robbery at Lordship. Um, he, they stole. They conspired to steal that Volkswagen Passat, and that same car was then used in the robbery to block the entrance of the credit union. Uh, as the convoy of cars and Gardaí were about to leave with the day's takings. Um, and that car was then dr- uh, 
used to take the culprits, the four raiders who had gone into the car park from that location to a burn site in South Armagh at Cumson's Lane, where that Volkswagen site was burned out. And he also, the judge also found that James Flynn had driven his own BMW to that same burn site and taken those people, those raiders from the burn site to wherever they needed to go after that. Mm. Um, so he did state that James Flynn was responsible, first of all, for this conspiracy to steal that Volkswagen Passat and also that he was involved as an accessory before and after the robbery at Lordship. But the prosecution case was that he was one of the direct participants in that robbery and and um, he, he found that there wasn't enough evidence to show that. And in fact, he, he suggested that it is more likely, in fact, that he never left his BMW car during the currency of that robbery. He said that he had been connected to that BMW throughout that time. And uh, if he was the person who was tasked with driving the people from the burn site, it was unlikely that he would have left the BMW during the currency of the robbery itself. So he found that the prosecution case, as it was put forward, wasn't made out, certainly not to the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, am I right in thinking that the court found that there was no evidence to place either of the men at uh, the credit union when the robbery was underway, uh, but there was talk uh, uh, about the phone communication between Brendan Trainer and Aaron Brady, uh, which uh, the judge in this case uh, said uh, was consistent with some involvement. Yeah, it was. He called a lot of the evidence um, amounted to a high suspicion. One of the suspicious aspects of it was that Brendan Trainer attempted to call Aaron Brady multiple times over a very short sp- space of time in the minutes before the Raiders um, arrived at Lordship Credit Union and took their places essentially in hiding over the wall uh, behind the car park. So there was a flurry of phone activity where Brendan Trainer was trying to contact Aaron Brady right around that time. And that, he, the judge said, did amount to a certain amount of suspicion. It suggested some involvement, perhaps some knowledge of what was to happen. <clears throat> and some eagerness on his part to, to to contact Aaron Brady. But again, it fell short of any proof beyond a reasonable doubt that he was actually one of the participants. And of course, one of the big problems that the, the prosecution had and the, the, the judges in the special criminal court pointed this out was that they couldn't actually prove at all that uh, Brendan Trainer even left his home uh, in the hour before the robbery took place. What is known is that he was dropped home by Aaron Brady and James mm. Flynn at about half seven that night. <clears throat> the robbery happened two hours later. Brendan Trainer didn't have a car and uh, the court pointed out that they, they couldn't see any means by which he could have travelled from there to Lordship and then gotten home in time to have been seen by his then girlfriend who gave evidence that she saw him within sort of 15 to 20 minutes of the robbery and she noticed nothing unusual about him. He certainly didn't look like he was a man who had been hiding in a ditch for about 45 minutes to an hour uh, before carrying out an, a violent armed robbery. So there was no evidence the judge found that he had actually left his home during that period of time and therefore no evidence that he was again a direct participant in the actual uh, robbery itself. Okay but the phone contact uh, Justice Hunt said reeked of suspicion. He was also very critical of this tattoo that we've been hearing about saying it glorified his position within the credit union raid. Uh, as a result of that Brendan Trainer was worried about his reputation, about his right to a, a good name. 
Exactly. Yeah. His his counsel, upon hearing the verdict, once the verdict had been completed, his counsel, Sean Guerin, senior counsel, rose and asked for a moment to speak to his client. And after he had spoken to Brendan Trainer, he came back and he actually asked the court to exclude or withdraw uh, from any written public in any written uh, publication of its verdict references to Brendan Trainer either being a member of a criminal gang or doing anything in furtherance of the interests of a criminal gang. Now the judge refused to do that. Uh, he said that he was not going to whitewash his verdict in favour of Brendan Trainer. He said that it was the duty and obligation of the court to give a detailed and reasoned judgment and to go through uh, the reasons why it had come to the, 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 the verdict that it had. And he also said that there was an onus on him to, if there were mistakes made, if there were um, if there were lessons to be learned, excuse me, was the, mm. was the actual phrase that he used, then it's important that the people uh, who need to learn those lessons understand exactly where the court is coming from so that they can learn those lessons. Now that was directed at the Director of Public Prosecutions because he did say, the judge did say on a number of occasions that uh, other other um, other not charges but other cases could have been presented to the court in, involving joint enterprise but those cases were not made to the court. The specific, the DPP was very specific on saying that these two men were directly involved in the raid and not that they were members of a joint enterprise to carry out a robbery. And mm. so if there are lessons to be learned, he said it's important that the court set out what those lessons might be. It was a, a long trial, three months, uh, three judges, a lot of evidence. Uh, and uh, of course, during uh, the course of a trial, there's restrictions on reporting. It's being reported today that this man, Brendan Trainer, was arrested by Detective Garda Adrian Donoghue four months before he was shot dead in Lordship. Yeah, it's one of those um, one of those strange uh, occurrences that um, I suppose for the for the time being it remains just that uh, something of a, a coincidence. The um, a, a number of things you know obviously emerge during a trial uh, that aren't heard. Uh, or that aren't published during the currency of a trial. But yes, that, that was one of the things that was that has been mentioned, yes. Okay, Owen, I have to leave there. Thank you as always, though, for joining us uh, this okay. morning. Much appreciated. Owen Reynolds, court reporter with Ireland International News Agency. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, you've been hearing about uh, Fianna Fáil, I think, in the events inside and indeed those outside where farmers continue to protest for a second day today. Let's speak once again to Tim Cullinan, who's the president of the Irish Farmers Association. And a very good morning to you, Tim. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. You refused to meet with Minister McConnellogue yesterday, but you did meet with the and the leader of Fianna Fáil. Uh, your biggest complaint, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, at the moment is to do with the nitrates directive. Did you make any progress? Yeah, I suppose there's two key issues, Michael, uh, since we spoke um, last week. Obviously, the nitrates is, is a huge concern for us. And no, I would have to say, look, we had the meeting with the Tarnished uh, and well, our key uh, chairs in there and explained specifically to him the concerns and, and, and the costs associated with this. And uh, look, as far as we, um, or what we achieved with uh, the Taunister was that he would reflect on our request. And our, our request is very clear, is that we need him to go back again to the EU Commission and reopen the negotiations on this. 
And you know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about you know, it's only Ireland and one or two more countries have this special derogation. But look, I've been pinting, pinting out and pinted out again to the Tanishta yesterday. Like, we are different, a different model of production, a grass-based system, and it is unique. And I suppose to look at this and see politically what's happening across Europe at the moment, you take countries like Poland, Romania, a lot of the countries there in the Eastern Bloc that are adjacent to um, Ukraine have a special deal at the moment where they do not have to trade or buy the grain coming out of of, um, Ukraine currently. It's just passing through their countries and coming west because it's impacting on their market. So we have a unique case here, and I think, you know, the minister, our minister, has a responsibility to get back out there. And, you know, as I said on your on, on your show only last week, you know what I mean, that he, he only conducted a video call with this commissioner is just not good enough. Mm. And it's at the level now of the Tarnishta, and we will be bringing it to the level of the Taoiseach before this week is out. That's how concerned and worried we are know where this is all going and obviously the other key area there is the payments currently and again like we're still making this point which is I think a very relevant point like what other sector would put up with a payment being delayed and furthermore like the way Mr. McConnell has conducted his business uh, in recent times it's all how do you work with somebody that um is in negotiations both on a tech he's officials on a technical side and with myself and my people on a political side and then decides to make a decision and put it out in the public domain in the press release and then call a meeting if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. We go in and discuss this. There's not much point discussing something when he, in his own uh, head, has done, done and completed a deal. So that's you no, know, that's where we are at at the moment, Mike. Uh, and did uh, Michal Martin commit to anything? Uh, what he committed to, whether well, he committed that he would reflect on what we put forward yesterday, and he would come back to us. Now reflect, he didn't commit. Being, you know, being, being, being straight up with you. That's mm. as far as um, we, what we achieved with the tarnish day yesterday. And um, as I say, our campaign still continues because you know, we don't believe we have the door open mm. yet in, in Europe. And this is something that has to happen in Europe. Like, I mean, the tarnish day is the Minister for Foreign Affairs. Uh, we have our Minister for Agriculture. Surely these people, if we can fle- flex our muscles in Europe... I can't understand, and we have our own EU commissioner as well out there as well, I mean, why we can't 
with a logical case and we've put forward a very logical case here where we, we're willing to use less chemical fertiliser if a farmer wants to remain at the 250 kilos organic N. It's not, Michael, that we're going to the government and saying we need something, just do it. We have come with a very credible proposal and the way that that po- proposal was dealt with by the government, I believe is just not simply, simply just not good enough. Do you believe that's a winnable argument though, whether it's by video call or if uh, the Minister was to travel to Brussels because the Environmental Protection Agency is very concerned about water quality, talking about alarming declines in water quality, uh, with half of our rivers and lakes polluted, two-thirds of our, our estuaries also polluted. Yeah, and and uh, if we look at that, and if you look at estuaries, 40% plus of the, the, the pollution in the estuaries is coming from local authority water treatment plants. What is the EPA doing about that, or what is the government doing about that? Like, everything is focused on agriculture here. And I'm not saying, look, that we're not stepping up to the mark here. Our farmers have adopted 30 measures, Michael, since 2018. 30 measures at their own cost. There's no need to go through them here again. Rebuilding roadways, Mm. different um, species of grass. And you know what's critically important here, Michael, is last year, we use 15% chemical fertiliser. This year, would you believe it, on top of that, there's another reduction year-to-date of a similar figure of 15 or 16%. It's not that we're... And this is proving by using different types of grasses, we can produce the same amount of grass with less fertiliser. And those will lead to a solution to the problem. And like in this country, like a lot of things, and politically a lot of things happened in the past, are we going to shoot the messenger here now? and uh, come back in a few years' time, what was all that about? Why did we need to do it? Because I genuinely believe, and my experts that's advising me are telling me, we can do this, and we will do it, and we're on this journey. And uh, the one word we do need here, you're right, is time, despite what the Minister or anybody else is saying. Okay. Um, What are you hoping for or expecting from Micheál Martin as uh, the leader of uh, the Fianna Fáil party? Uh, Would you hope that he would direct Charlie McConnellogue to travel to Brussels as the minister uh, and try renegotiate that? Because I think the minister and possibly others may see that as usurping his uh, authority. Uh, Failing that, would you expect Micheál Martin to replace Charlie McConnellogue as the minister or is it a case that uh, if he does neither, he'll face uh, the political fallout uh, of angry members of the Irish Farmers Association? Yeah, I suppose, look, um, what or who, Fianna Fáil or the government decide to have Minister for Agriculture, I have no problem with Minister McConnell if he gets out there and does his job. This is about... No, I will work with anybody. I will work with Mr. McConnell if he comes in and deal with us in the proper manner and not to be dealing with us across the media. I think that's critically important here and that he gets in there. And all our request is that they go back there, reopen this and bring over the officials. We actually had, in IFA, we had invited those people to, to Dublin or to come down the country to see what we're doing on our farms. We have an open book policy here, Michael. We want them to come over and see what we're doing. But I know we made that invitation to where we're coming, but for some reason... That, uh, that was changed. We didn't change it. So I want that minister to bring those people over here. We'll take them around to numerous farms up and down the country and show them what we were doing. And and this is about, as I say, protecting 
a very valuable industry in this country, grass-based system, unique in any country right around the world, where we're, we're marketing our products in dairy alone to 133 or 130 countries right around the world and, and produce overall to 180 countries. That's, what we're, that's what's up for, for grabs here, Michael. And that's a serious industry with 170,000 people invo- implied in. And we've made this, and our people all night last night, we kept lobbying these uh, Fianna Fáil ministers and TDs up to late o'clock last night. Okay, well, I'm sure uh, they'll be meeting you today over the course of uh, the day because there's a huge delegation there at Horse and Jockey. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, on this, the second day of uh, the IFA protest in Tipperary. Tim Cullinan, President of the Irish Farmers Association there. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Speaking of Michal Martin, speaking at the Fianna Fáil Think-In, uh, I'm sure a lot of people were taken aback by his press conference yesterday saying that the media needed to stop cheerleading Sinn Féin on uh, as if it's a slam dunk that they're going to win the next election and form the next government. It's not. And what about Fianna Fáil being in that government with Sinn Féin? Well, Michal Martin wouldn't favour the idea. He thinks Sinn Féin are anti-enterprise and anti-European. But he's not ruling out the possibility of forming a coalition government with Sinn Féin. What does Sinn Féin think about that? Well, let's try and find out. Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin TD for me, East is on the line. Uh, can you uh, imagine sitting uh, alongside Fianna Fáil TDs in Dáil Éireann? Well, I, I don't know, Michael, um, and I suppose uh, time will tell in, in relation to any of the outcome of the next general election, first of all. Um, We've, we're well on the record in relation to this. Um, our objective in Sinn Féin is to maximise the votes and maximise the seats that we have. Uh, we, we just last week or the week before had the, the new boundary review, so we know what the what the, the next doll will look like. We know that we left seats behind us the last time, um, and we don't want to, to make that mistake again. So, so our objective is to set out our stalls, to put a, a manifesto in place um, based on our policies uh, and to go to the people on, on, on that basis mm. and to try and garner as much support. And then, like every election, um, it depends on the numbers then after that. So, you no, know, I'd have thought it would have depended on the policies. And if you take uh, the policies of Fianna Fáil now, uh, they're not very popular with farmers. Would you be able to sit alongside Charney McConnellogue as the Minister for Agriculture? So, so I think I think in a, you know, like specifically that. So, so we have an election the next time round, and like the numbers coming out of it then, and you will have heard yourself, and it's obvious, Michael, that you know, if, if Sinn Féin increase or other parties increase, what, what does it mean to the dynamic? What does it mean to the... We, we've been clear. We, we went into the last election. We said we wanted to, to lead the government. We wanted to lead a government that didn't have Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael in it. That is still our clear stated position. Um, if Sinn Féin is to increase at the, the next election, at whose expense will it be? We would hope that it would be at the expense of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and, and the Greens, mm. um, and and you would have uh, uh, increased numbers on the left and left thinking, left thinking independence. Um, but the, the numbers will dictate. And then 
it's, as it always is the case of, as you said, the policies. Mm. And can we agree uh, a programme for government? And mm. I think, I think, in fairness, it's, it's fair to say personalities come into it as well. And I think Michal Martin, as a, a leader of, of Fianna Fáil, has uh, taken that party in a particular direction. Yeah, he probably had to step down if Fianna Fáil was going to go into coalition with uh, Sinn Féin. What about Charlie McConlogue? Well, well, again, you know, none of, none of I suppose this is an abstract conversation. Mm. Um, you know, our hope would. Well, I'm just wondering about the wondering about the compatibility of the two parties. Michal Martin talks about enterprise uh, and your stance on uh, the European Union. Uh, you're not going there with Charlie McConlogue. What What about health budget overruns uh, and tro- another trolley crisis? Nurses um, are up in arms already before we get into the winter months uh, about what lies ahead. What about Stephen Donnelly? Could you work with him? Well, I, I suppose uh, to, to answer all of it, and, and including agriculture, we have uh, for a uh, hundred years practically at this stage lived with the the policies of, of, of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael leading this country. And particularly, you know, I can talk in my, my own lifetime, a particular type of, of politics, a particular approach mm. to politics, a particular ideology. Um, and across every department, um, we have seen policy failures. So in, in agriculture, like the IFA are, are outside protesting, they were prote- protesting, protesting outside the Fine Gael uh, Parliamentary Party uh, meeting later on this week as well. We have seen a failure in, in agriculture policy in, in Ireland. You know, um, I wouldn't just, be worried about Fine Gael if I was you, though, because they say no. that there's no way that they're going to uh, enter into a coalition with Sinn Féin under any circumstance. Uh, would, would, you, would you give a, a, a ministry, would you be happy... Uh, if there was a coalition between Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin, uh, if uh, Dara O'Brien was in Cabinet uh, and indeed uh, returned as the Minister for Housing? Well, well, two things. I'll go back to it. Our preference is that Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael wouldn't be in the next government and Sinn Féin would lead it and the hue of the next government would be uh, of uh, one of change and a different type of politics and a delivery for, 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 for the people of, of Ireland. Regardless of the the personalities involved, for me, it's about what policies they are they are implementing. Now, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and the Greens have agreed a policy platform. It's called the Programme for Government, and they are implementing it. And it is an unmitigated disaster in so many policy areas. And and that's something that you know, is determined by the strength of the individual parties. That's why we go into the next election and we put a manifesto to the people and look for the strongest possible uh, mandate for, 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 for that policy platform. If we get it, you know, you, you aim for an overall majority and that's what you, what you hope to achieve. But if, if you fall short of that, then it becomes a matter of the strength of the individual parties as they negotiate a programme for government. And of course, if you're you know, significantly stronger than the other parties in terms of numbers, well, then that strengthens your hand in terms of the, 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 the mm. programme for government negotiation. So really, for, for me, it's not about the personalities. It's all about the, the, the policies and the type of politics that the next government will will uh, will deliver. And, and would you say? Anything, I'm sorry. Would you say the same of the Green Party? 
Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. For, and, and, and in fairness to, to, the, to the parties of the left, uh, um, it's, it's about, you know, you know, there will be the nature of, of programme for government negotiations is that there's, you know, there's give and take, that there is compromise. It, 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 it's, it is based on and should be based on the strength of the individual parties and reflective of the strength. So, you know, if, uh, uh, and, and it's what we hope for, mm. uh, if given the chance, if, if Sinn Féin have a, a big number of TDs the next time round, we hope that the next programme for government will, will, will strongly reflect the, the values, the policy priorities of, of Sinn Féin. Of course, if we get lesser numbers or if we're excluded, we, we don't have that opportunity. Okay. Um, but What about the Green Party Minister for Transport, uh, the leader of the Green Party, Eamon Ryan? How, how, given the huge increase in the number of road deaths in, in uh, this country, how do you feel Eamon Ryan has been performing in that role? Well, well, I think... Um, I think Eamon Ryan and, and the Green Party are, you know, really low in the polls, and you know, the, the next election will determine whether whether they 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 have representatives or not, or not, or whether they'll be they'll be part of the, 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 the any future government. And I, I have my my doubts in relation to that. But I think, in his role as as Minister for Transport, he has had a unique and particular focus on a particular aspect of transport. Uh, in relation to public and active travel, and that's to, to be welcomed, and, mm. and we have supported and encouraged and, and pushed them. Is that at the cost? Of, is that the cost at the cost of road safety? I, I I think it's certainly at the cost of of uh, um, of, of roads infrastructure, and I think it's fair to say that the government, uh, it, not just in the form of Eamon Ryan, but also in the form of of of, of Helen McEntee as the Minister for Justice, have taken their eye off uh, the ball and have presided over um, worsening, significantly worsening uh, road uh, uh, fatalities. Um, and I think there's a number of contributory factors mm. to, 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 uh, um, uh, to that. Um, for example, the, the conditions of the roads, the surface, the contours, the engineering, and, mm. and I think right across Louth and Meath and everywhere else, there's there's often a lot to be desired in, in that regard. Okay, but, but you've always got good roads and bad roads. What about the road role of the Road Safety Authority? They're launching a, a new campaign today. Uh, I don't remember the last time the Road Safety Authority launched a campaign. They've gone very silent on the airwaves in recent years. Yeah, and uh, bear, so so what have we got? And again, let's come back to, the, to our ministers and to our government. Like the Road Safety Authority, in my opinion, is a, is a quango. Um that was that that was established and and has responsibility. Um, some of it marketing, some of it publicity, but some of it in practical terms. Like for example, um, and this is very relevant in terms of the the, the outcomes on our roads, um, uh, maintaining the conditions of vehicles. The NCT, that's the responsibility of the, the Road Safety uh, Authority. The, our licensing system, the NDLS, that's the responsibility of the Road Safety Authority. Um, uh, our testing facilities, uh, again, the responsibility of the Road Safety Authority for hauliers, the CPC, the, the, uh, the standards there, responsibility of the Road Safety Authority. And I would say for every one of those where the, the road safety has a competency and a responsibility. A lot of them they've, they've outsourced to uh, uh, various companies. Every one of those systems, there's a problem with. NCT, uh, NCT uh, NDLS, testing, licensing, hmm. problem with every single one of them. It seems to me, 
And uh, this is just a sense I have, uh, but it, it does seem uh, very definitely to me uh, that uh, the Road Safety Authority are not performing at the same level that they were, let's say, five years in terms of messaging and education and campaigns. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right, um, and they, they have this actually, and and I think it's probably reflected in the fact that the, the launch they have this morning is actually a relaunch. And I think if you if you ask many of your listeners, were they aware of the first launch, they would say no, no, they weren't. Um, uh, I, I think, in fairness, when when um, Gay Bourne was in a in a high profile role with Road Safety Authority because of his yeah. uh, personality and and, uh, and popularity, I, I think they they, they were um, more prominent in, in people's minds. Um, but but I will go go down to it. Um, you know, in the area of it's it's not just about the Road Safety Authority, although they have significant responsibility. They do need support from government in terms of the capacity of the NCT, of the testing centres, um, uh, uh, but also in terms of, of enforcement and regulation. Um, and we, I sit on the Joint Policing Committee in Mead, uh, month after month, myself and other political representatives, practically representing every party, raise the issue of speeding on our roads mm. and uh, uh, month after month, we get the same uh, type of answer and little by way of, of progress. And it's hugely frustrating. We've spoken before on your show about the the, the, the shortage in terms of numbers of Gardaí. But actually, I, I think uh, that's a factor, a significant mm. factor, but also is the the um, the use of the, the resources that are there, the strategic location of them, the visibility of the roads policing unit, um, and the, the the visibility of those um, the, the speed camera vans. So okay. there's, 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 there's a number of contributing factors okay. and a number of responsible yeah. authorities, the Road Safety Authority yeah. and the government, particularly the Department of Transport and the Department of, of Justice. And there's failures at every every level. Can I just ask you though? Does it does it seem odd to you? Uh, that there's uh, the possibility of leaving search students being taught road safety because the Minister for Education wrote to the Road Safety Authority. It's not because the Road Safety Authority wrote to the Minister for Education. Yeah, so so again, I'll go back to this. Like, There's there's a strategy there that says zero deaths by, by 2050. Um, but in, in truth, um, it's you, you have to ask the question around... Um, the, that plan itself, uh, the resourcing of that plan, how uh, well thought out it is, how well resourced it is, and its ability to actually deliver anything like that, because that has been stated policy um, for a no- since 2021, actually, uh, and instead of actually making good progress, we're going exactly the wrong direction and worsening and worsening. And, and I think, you know, there, there are serious questions to be asked of the Road Safety Authority, and as I said already, the responsible authorities in the Department of Transport and in the Department of Justice. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin TD for Me East, Darren O'Rourke. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's uh, go to Belfast and uh, the headquarters of our sister station U105 where Peter McVerry is on the line after what was 
a most peculiar day, it would seem, yesterday. Peter, good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Have you seen anything like the comments that were made at two separate press conferences yesterday by Taoiseach Leo Vratker and uh, the Northern Secretary Chris Heaton-Harris? And what does it say uh, about relationships between the two governments? Yeah, I think your last point is the most key there, Angle, in terms of, you know, we knew that there were there were divisions there and fractures, but we didn't realise that they were that they were so deep yesterday it was a bit of a set piece occasion. It was for it was meant to be a bit of a happy clappy day, um, with the announcement of a billion euros for Northern Ireland and indeed the border counties uh, coming from the EU, from Westminster and from Dublin. The vast majority of it actually coming from Westminster and Chris Eden Harris's side. We'd known about it for a while but Yesterday was a bit of a choreographed set-piece occasion for them all to, 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 to um, slap back, shake hands, you know, visit a few businesses, yep. see a few kids doing dancing, for example, and just generally project a positive image. And especially because that Mara Sefcovic there from the EU, and if you remember pre-Windsor framework, you know, he wasn't the best of friends with the, the British government. None of them seemed to like each other, and, and now they were all there yesterday, and it was, a, it was an old pals act, and as far as you understand, indeed, Chris Hayden-Harris, the Secretary of State from Ireland, and Mara Sefcovic travelled together from one event to the other, showing how close they are to each other now. But the divisions now appear to be between London and Dublin over a couple of things. One of them over um, when exactly we're going to get Stormont up and running mm. and how much effort the British government are making. And the second one over then any aspiration or discussion around um, United Ireland and where exactly that's going. And mm. the, the fractures of the two men uh, were exposed at a 15-minute meeting and after they came out of the Abbey Clappy occasion, they both yeah. did separate press conferences and were very clear in that they were disagreeing on, you know, probably everything apart from the day of the week. Mm. Is it anything to do with the legacy bill and the prospect of Ireland taking a case against the United Kingdom? Uh, because uh, there were different uh, versions of uh, events uh, from the two ministers, if you like, yesterday in terms of what was said. Uh, but I, I wondered at the same time if Chris Heaton-Harris uh, had forgotten that nobody else in the world uh, agrees with the British government on this. Yes, certainly. And there are lots of people within Northern Ireland who were unhappy with the legislation with a, a, a small protest from relatives outside with people like Amnesty International, encouraging them to think again and saying it's not too late for them to look at that legislation. That definitely is one of the sore points that's sitting there between them now. But equally publicly over the last couple of weeks, I think maybe about you know three, four weeks ago, um, Leo Varadkar talked about the need for there to be a uh, plan B in trying to get Stormont up and running. Um, Chris Heaton Harris stood up in the House of the Commons of Westminster last week. Labour have a new Shadow Secretary of State appointed. Um, Tony Benn's son, Hilary Benn, uh, is now the Shadow Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. He asked last week in the House of Commons how exactly the talks were going. And Chris Heaton Harris said that they're moving along uh, significantly, mm. substantially, I think was the word that he that he used, and said just because you couldn't see progress doesn't mean progress wasn't happening. That was something Leo Radcliffe disagreed with very clearly yesterday. He came out and said, well, actually, if they are moving forward, it seems to be in a quote at a snail's pace. So two very different ones. And you'll know over the last while that the Dublin government have been very unhappy because they don't think the British government are reaching out and involving them in the way that they that they should. You know, Leif Rackley is very clear to say we're not talking about joint authority for Northern Ireland going forward, but we are talking about needing to have some sort of plan. Whereas Chris Heaton Harris said yesterday, any plan that isn't plan A, and Leo Rackley mm. talking about plan B, isn't helpful 
He says he's determined to get people to focus on the one and only way forward, which is the DUP agreeing to go back into Stroma and letting everybody else in. You know, and you have even an Ireland comment around that as well that, that, that are frustrating Chris Heaton-Harris. Mm, there's no possibility that this was choreographed, uh, good cop, bad cop type of uh, thing with Chris Heaton-Harris bringing the carrot of uh, the over one billion pounds in funding uh, that was uh, put in front of the DUP's face and everybody else's face yesterday uh, and uh, Leo Ratker then with the stick if they don't get back to running uh, the, uh, the, 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 the state uh, that uh, there would have to be a plan B. Yeah, a, a little bit, I suppose. The, 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 even yesterday was a bit of choreographed in terms of the announcement of the money. The reality is that we've known for nine, ten months or more that this money w- was coming. So it's not money that's been magicked up in order to take the DNP back to the table, but it is money that's being used to project and tell the rest of the world about you know the intransigence that we see from the DUP. I suppose, Michael, it's up to yourself and the listeners to decide will the two governments be as calculated and as choreographed as to do that. But I think judging from the, the body language of the two men yesterday, not just in, in the comments, you know, it did it did feel as if there was a fracture and a friction there and it does feel as if they're definitely not on that on that same page. So, mm. you know, if they were if they were play acting, then the two boys deserve an award. Okay, uh, and what about Leo Radker's comments on uh, United Ireland uh, being realised in his lifetime? Uh, I imagine that did go down like a, a lead balloon with uh, some in the unionist communi- community, anyway. Yes, yeah, so, uh, absolutely. I think there's a realisation here that Brexit and how it's gone has put the debate at least around the United Ireland back on the table. The fact that that should Stormont resume, Sinn Féin will be in the First Minister's post. The fact that the next time you have an election south of the border, there's a good chance that Sinn Féin will be in a prime position. All of those things are coming together to say that there is likely to be you know more of a debate um, going forward and things like the Shared Island Fund, things like the, the Ireland's future debate that's happening will all bring that onto the table. There is a fear there. And actually in the last maybe three days, I think. Um, Colin Eastwood, the leader of the SDLP, gave an interview to the, the Irish News up here, and for the first time he put a timeline on it, and he thought it was feasible that we could have a vote on the United Ireland within the next seven years mm. uh, was the timeline he's put on it. So, you know, when people start quoting numbers like that, it will obviously start to put a level of worry and fear into unionists. Nationalists are saying to them, listen, embrace the discussion. No one's going to railroad you into United Ireland. Yeah. Uh, Leo Bradford was very clear to say recently that actually the judge of any country and how you would judge it would be how they treated their minorities and that in any United Ireland, the unionist Protestant population of Northern Ireland would be a minority. And so the most important thing was how they would be treated in that discussion. But again, you know, we're a long way from that. If we can't, sure. if we can't get yeah. our own Northern Ireland Parliament up and running and keep it running for a couple of years without a problem, then how, you know, how are, we, how are we going to move forward into, into new structures if we can't sort the ones that we have? Yeah, a very valid point, I'm sure. But I, I was just going to ask you about the nationalist community. Uh, do you think people have welcomed uh, how Leo Radker, as Taoiseach, has been citing Articles 2 and 3 of the Irish Constitution? And I, I think it, 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 it has been noticed. There probably have been times when there might have been more of a feeling that, you know, you might have had a and Michael Martin and Athena Fall more than the overarching and Athena Gale interested in, 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 in stamping up maybe for some of the people at north of the border. So I think it hasn't gone unnoticed that he's been, you know, a bit more a bit more vocal. But again, you know, the the, the, the proof is in the pudding for us all and to see well actually 
you know, should we have a situation where we get to it? The Irish government are co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement. They're, they're keen to point that out. They believe the British government aren't involved in them as much as they say in the way that they should. But going forward, it'll be interesting to see, you know, are we coming to a crunch or not? Michael, there, is, there was speculation here recently mm. that, that there was some movement in the DUP and that there might be a chance that we'll go back in. But the window for that, you know, uh, is becoming increasingly short. If we don't have the DUP back up and, and strong up and running probably by a couple of weeks after Halloween, then it's likely they're just going to sit tight until the next British general election will be too close to it for them. You know, and then who knows, because all the speculation and the polls would tell you that it may not be a Conservative government we're dealing with going forward, but a Labour government. And it'll be interesting to see what their perspective is and what their proposal will be to solve the situation and the impasse in Northern Ireland. Should Labour get in and should we still be without Stormont? Okay, Peter, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us as always. Peter McVerry of our sister station U105. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a, a number of incidents currently are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with those investigations. And Garda Kate Patterson of uh, the Community Policing Unit in Dundalk Garda Station joins us for this week's report. Thanks indeed for doing that. And we're going to begin in Omeath when last Tuesday night a, a rather valuable trailer was stolen. Good morning, Michael. That's correct. Um, so we'll start off with the theft of this trailer at Knocknagorn in Omeath last Tuesday, the 29th of August. Guardian Carlingford and Omeath are investigating the theft of an Eifer Williams trailer valued at €3,000 from the driveway of a dwelling in the Knocknagorn area sometime between the hours of 10pm and 10.30pm on Tuesday, the 29th. Um, of August. A number of persons travelling in two vehicles, one of which was dark and one of which was silver, entered the curtilage of a dwelling in Knocknagorn and spent several minutes at the bottom of the driveway attempting to hitch the trailer onto the silver vehicle. So unsuccessfully doing so, both vehicles drove in convoy with the trailer and headed towards the Newry area along the canal there. So the stolen trailer has distinctive reflectors on both its sides and rear and it may stand out should any of your listeners come across it. If you did come across either vehicle or this trailer or you believe that you might have captured them on your dash cam footage, then please get in touch with Dundalk Garda Station. Uh, the number in Dundalk is 042 Okay, the next report is of a fatal road traffic collision. This goes back uh, a couple of weeks, but you are reappealing for information. Yes, Michael. So it's a fatal road traffic collision that took place on Saturday the 19th of August at the Carn Bay Hotel in Dundalk County Live. So coming up on three weeks ago, but the incident room in Dundalk are reissuing their appeal to anyone who may have come across this collision. Um, as I said, it took place at approximately 1130 p.m. on the night of Saturday the 19th of August and it resulted in the death of a 27-year-old male and the serious injury of his companion. We believe that a vehicle may have come across the collision just after it happened and it's important that we speak to any occupants of this vehicle purely at this stage as witnesses. Um, if you did witness the collision then we really need your assistance in the investigation and if you can help, again we would urge you to contact on Dock Garda Station, same number as before, or you can always contact the Garda Confidential Line, and the number for it is 1800 666 
travel one. And we would just again like to stress to, that the occupants of this vehicle, they're not by any means suspects. And we would like to speak them solely, uh, solely as witnesses at this point. Okay, we go to Trim in County Meath next. Uh, Trim in County Meath, uh, this is last Friday night, Saturday morning, the small hours of Saturday morning when an assault occurred. This was a pretty serious assault, in fact, wasn't it? It was, Michael. It, it was a very serious assault. So the Guardian Trim were appealing for any witnesses. Um, the two places you said in Trim on the early hours of Saturday, the 9th of September, in, in the Haggard Street area of the town, Sometime between 1.30am and 2am and it's believed that there were a large significant number of persons present in the vicinity and they may have witnessed the, the, the assault taking place. Now, the victim in this instance, he suffered serious injuries and was taken to hospital for treatment. So if you did witness the incident, perhaps you were in that crowd of people, perhaps you captured it on your mobile phone, then we, we would urge you to contact Trim Garda Station to assist the investigation and the number for trim there is zero four six nine four eight one five four zero. Or as always, you can contact your local guard station, any guard station, or in the confidential line. All right, uh, we're going to report on a, a robbery that took place uh, on Friday. This was in Drogheda. Am I right in thinking this was in the graveyard? That's right, Michael. So it's an extremely frightening robbery, which, as you said, took place at the graveyard in St Peter's Cemetery in Moneymore. Um, last Friday afternoon, uh, Friday just past the 8th of September, just afternoon at around 12.30, and the victim in this instance, a lone female in her 70s, she was praying at her husband's graveside when she was approached by two males, one of whom was on a bicycle. Now, these males, who are the suspects in this frightening crime, had been heading from Moneymore towards a Lady of Lourdes Hospital, and when they observed this elderly victim on her own, it changed the direction of travel and made their way towards her. One of the men proceeded to speak to the victim, to the victim, apologies, and threatened her very menacingly by saying, "Your money or your life." On doing this, he pulled a knife from his trousers and he pointed it towards the victim. Um, the female victim, who was petrified, as you can imagine, handed the suspect over her purse, which contained approximately two hundred euros in cash. Now, the victim believes the suspect might have been intoxicated at the time and they actually fled in the direction they came from, so they headed back towards Money Moor. The suspect who made the threat and who produced the knife, we believe is possibly aged in his mid-teens uh, to late teens, so quite young, and is described as being very, very skinny. He had short, tight black hair and was wearing a half-zip top and black plastic bottoms. Now, the second male who was with him, who, the, the male that was on the bike, he's believed to be wearing similar clothing um, and the bike on which he was cycling was black. So if you have any information which might assist in catching the perpetrators of this, as we've mentioned, really frightening crime, we would urge you to contact Drogheda Garda Station at your earliest opportunity. The number for Drogheda is 041 or as in the case of any witness appeal, should you wish to remain anonymous, you can get in touch via the Garda Confidential Line. And the number again for that is 1800 one. Very frightening, as you say. Um, mm-hmm. 
dreadfully sad in, in many ways um, uh, and a, a terrible thing to have happened to that woman in her 70s praying at her husband's grave her late husband's grave uh, and that was on fri- Friday afternoon last week at uh, St. Mm-hmm. Peter's Cemetery we do hope, obviously, uh, like all of uh, the incidents you report on, that if anybody has any information, that they'll bring that to you. Really, very, very upsetting Absolutely. story. I think so. And, you know, it can be something very small that you mightn't think is very significant, but it could be significant to our investigation. So any information that you have, you know, please get in touch. It could be the key piece of information that we need just to further the investigation. Okay. We've been talking uh, a lot about road safety uh, because of mm-hmm. uh, the number of collisions and uh, fatalities uh, in uh, recent months. Uh, and uh, we're going into the winter months now. I think you can already see the darker mornings, darker evenings, uh, and you have some advice to people uh, that hopefully they'll heed going into the winter. That's right, Michael. We're really trying to promote the, the be safe, be seen message. Now, as you say, with the evenings getting darker, and with the increased vehicular and pedestrian traffic on our roads and footpaths now that the pupils have settled back into school routine. So we are urging all road users that if you're going out, please be safe and please be seen. Remember when you're out walking, cycling or running, that although you can see the traffic around you, the drivers on the road may not always be able to see you. So to sort of protect yourself, please make sure you're wearing a high-vis vest an armband, a jacket, or even carry a torch and ensure that when you're going out onto or near a public road that you are highly visible at all times. If you're going out on a bicycle, it's really imperative that you check that your bicycle lights are working and everything is in order. So as opposed for motorists, we would, ensure, we would ask you to please ensure that the lights in your car, your motorbike, your tractor, your van, whatever form of transport you're using, that they're all in good working order. For those who have trailers, uh, please ensure that the lights and reflectors are all in place and that they're in good working condition. Maybe just check them before you make off on your journey. Be safe and be seen regardless of whether you're on foot or on wheels. Um, I suppose we'll just finish by saying many of our local community policing units do have access to these high visibility armband vests and jackets. So if you or any member of your community are in need of some, then you can get in touch with your local community uh, policing unit via your local Garda Divisional Headquarters. Garda Kate Patterson, thank you for joining us from Dundalk Garda Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time next Tuesday. Now, before we leave you, let me bring you some more of uh, the comments. And speaking of road safety, we were speaking to Tony Toner earlier in the programme about educating young people in schools. Somebody said uh, he's in fairyland. Students at 17 can't wipe their own horses. Uh, thank you indeed for that. Uh, but I, I think regardless of how you feel if that's how you feel you'll have to agree that regardless of their talents if you like they're driving motor cars uh, Matty in RD in touch saying good morning Michael on the subject of drivers it's not only the public I was walking through a quiet road with children playing football when a squad car came tearing around the corner doing at least 50 in a 30 kilometre an hour zone thanks for that Matty maybe they were chasing somebody I don't know uh, Noel says my Michael, half a million cars on the road in 10 years. The law of averages would say you'll have more accidents. Thanks for that, Noel. Uh, We'd Brian on the phone then to us. Brian feels that many tragedies involving young people could be avoided if parents, neighbours and staff in pubs and off-licences were proactive. 
Example, take the keys or their cars off them, drive young people to and from venues and, if necessary, report them to the Gardaí. It could save the lives of reckless drivers and their unfortunate passengers. Mary, thank you for your call too. Mary says, everyone is calling for speed limits to be reduced because they think that is the solution to stopping the carnage on our roads. But what about teaching our children and all motorists about driver responsibility? We all have our part to play in all of this and if motorists take the time to drive responsibly be mindful of the rules of the road driving conditions and so on then we can all play a part in making our roads safer for everyone we'd uh, an email from Tony in County Louth uh, following on from uh, the interview with uh, Minister Thomas Byrne yesterday uh, on USC uh, and Thomas Byrne saying uh, that uh, the election can't be bought uh, he says uh, it's weird to hear that uh, because there's been so many stunts over the years like removing car tax and domestic rates were deliberate and very obvious attempts to buy those elections at the time. Thank you indeed Tony. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us. That's all we have time for for today. Maggie McGuire Research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.